When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Although it may be very little grace that is in your heart, yet Christ has come with that grace. Christ is building in your heart. Christ is laying the foundation stone. The prince of the kings of the earth, Christ Jesus, is there with his plumb line. And he that has begun the good work in you will carry it on till it is perfected in glory. The temple will someday appear to your praise where now there seems to be but a tiny heap of stone. Every episode we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered Today we're going to London in England in the year 1883 to hear a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. Troy, we got we got another uh, five-star review on iTunes, didn't we? We did. We have another person coming in. I don't know how to say uh, their name fully, but I do believe maybe Doblesi might be what it was. That's uh, way better than I would have attempted. Do- okay, Doblesi. So- it sounds very nice, very beautiful name, but I, I'm doing my best to guess what that, that is. But they said they fans the flame. God is using revived thoughts to fan the flame for the love of his word in relationship with him. My faith is strengthened as I hear of these great men of God and their passion for God and the word they preached. Thank you to Revive Studios for all the work you are doing in your productions. My prayers are with you, so your work will continue. You have impacted my life. I pray you continue impacting many more. Thank you so much, very much. We really appreciate that. Yeah, that's wonderful. I have I have a busy house this morning. I have a two year old running around, <laughs> and I have a uh, a construction site outside my window. the The city is digging up the street right at the end of the driveway. I honestly don't know how I'm going to get my car out. Uh, so all that to say, there might be some <laughs> there might be some extra ambiance coming from my end. But you know, the show must go on. You know, Joel, I. <laughs> So you're reminding me, I don't know if how much our audience knows this, because if you're a newer listener, you found us in the past few months, so you might not really know. Uh, we don't talk a whole lot about our personal lives, but you saying you were having trouble getting out of your driveway reminded me of a wonderful story. As Joel and I are friends, we've been friends oh, for a very long no. time, went to Bible college. No. <laughs> and one day while recording Rabbi Thoughts, or no, no, it wasn't recording Rabbi Thoughts. I don't remember quite how it happened. But Our um, wives were hanging out. And that's right. Something. Our wives were hanging out. They are also wonderful friends a very long time. And uh, and well, Joel, Joel was busy. It was a very busy day and he may have backed into our car pretty hard. And Yeah, yeah well, so your <laughs> wife left her car in my driveway behind my car. And when they Which, left, it, it left as if that's like a, 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 <laughs> she was visiting well, no. with your wife. Yeah, she was visiting and my wife and her went out in a different car and uh, her, yeah. left her car parked there. And while my wife was leaving, she even looked at me and she said, Elise is parked behind you. Be careful backing out. And like <clears throat> seven minutes later, <laughs> I'm I'm bopping to my music, jumping in my car, throw it in reverse, and let it fly right right into the right into the front bumper of your wife's car. Cracked the radiator. You know, at first I'm thinking like, oh, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe it's just you know something I can nope. d- dent out. And I I open my door to to look at the damage, and I just hear running fluids dribbling out of the hood of your wife's car. And uh, yeah, that was not a fun time. And so. Uh, I replaced a radiator that day. I mean, I, I, I do paid feel a bad too, for but. you, you know, because it could have just been the dent door. It had to be something nasty. Um, yeah. I'm glad that what now, two or three years later, we could laugh. About it. I'm sure at the time you were like, oh, my gosh, especially because you had to make that phone call. And that meant you had to have that that wifely. I told you not to do that. Oh, thing she was mad were, at me. Uh, she, oh, she was mad at me. <laughs> okay, Joel, we're going to jump into this term. We actually don't normally do that, but just the way you framed it made me think of that moment. Uh, <laughs> that's that's my garage door opening. So that's, right. that's, that's actually my, I think that's my wife taking our two-year-old on a walk, if I had to guess. Or they're going All out right. to watch the construction. You know, I will say, backhoe digging up 
a street in front of your house, endless entertainment for a two-year-old. So highly Absolutely. recommended. All right, here we go. Joel, we have tackled Charles Spurgeon several times. We have, we have, we've actually done uh, quite a few episodes on him, which if you know him, if you're familiar with his work, you've been listening for a while, or you, of course, know of the name Charles Spurgeon, one of the most famous men ever preached. Uh, it makes sense that he'd be featured on a show that claims to have the best sermons of history. He was, after all, known as the Prince of Preachers. We have had the director of the Spurgeon Center from Midwestern on two different times to talk about him too. Those are some wonderful episodes. I highly recommend you go check out. Uh, but one thing we've never talked about is actually a very famous part of his life, and that is the relationship he had with his wife. So many of these guys, we don't really get a lot of information about their spouses, their families. But with Charles, we we actually have an absolutely large amount of information about his relationship with his wife. And I thought that this would be a really good thing to cover on this episode. Yeah, I'm excited to, you know, a little, a little bit of a different look. We try, you know, when we do people multiple times, try to analyze different aspects of their lives and doing a Charles Spurgeon wife episode, if I could call it that. I don't, I don't know. I mean, there, there's several different aspects to it, but um, it's kind of neat to see their relationship in ministry. Uh, just as a quick, cra- quick crash course, quick refresher, Troy, I know you don't know much about Spurgeon. I know he's, <laughs> he, he eludes you as far as his history, but... Let me uh, give a quick rundown. Born in 1834, he did ministry in London, England. And at a very young age, without any prior sermon teaching or, or uh, education, he began preaching. And he was successful. By his early 20s, he was preaching to audiences of several thousand people. And he would soon go on to lead the largest church in the entire British Empire. And this is all throughout the 1800s here. His sermons were spread and read throughout the entire world. He would go on to fund colleges and run orphanages, lead to the conversion of of many people, uh, including Oswald Chambers being one of his converts. Yet in all of that, he credits much of his success to the help of his wife. Now, they were not exactly love at first sight. I did not know this. This was a new aspect of their relationship I learned about. But Susanna Spurgeon first learned about Charles the first day he was preaching in his new position at their church. And she said, so this is his so-called eloquence. It does not impress me. What a painful, countrified manner. Will he ever quit making flourishes with that terrible blue silk handkerchief and his hair? Why, he looks like a barber's assistant. That was my best, you know, kind of upset, you know, whatever. But She seems pleasant. She, <laughs> she really, uh, you could tell she was really smitten with him at the love at first night. No, that, mm-hmm. that was not um, not the ideal So, you know, gentlemen, just a little bit of a revive thoughts, romantic date tips here. You know, you might not, the first impression might not go over well. That doesn't mean you don't have a shot because Charles was able to win her over. Despite all this, soon the two would be connecting and spending more time together. His preaching was deeply influential with her kind of real, you know, coming either coming to Christ or re kind of committing herself to Christ, one or the other. And as she got more serious about her faith, you know, Spurgeon sent her a copy of Pilgrim's Progress, you know, with writings. They just started to bond over that. And they really bonded over books. And often a date for them or a time together for them would be the two of them just reading books together or talking about a recently read edition of Jonathan Edwards, Richard Baxter, some Puritan book that they had found and that they enjoyed recently. And that's something they would do for the rest of their lives. They had that really uh, common foundation in loving books, especially kind of theologically rich books like those. A year later, they visited the uh, Crystal Palace together, which is this really brand new house building that was designed to be just gorgeous with all the best stuff, architecture. But, you know, they're going on a date is what they're doing there. They're having a nice time. And as they're going through it, uh, this new, beautiful, gorgeous building and garden and all that stuff, the perfect romantic gateway. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was putting out some smooth lines. He kind of kept saying to Susanna, you know, you know, hey, you ever... um." You ever you spent time praying for your future husband? You ever, you ever thought of that? And boy, she was. It's not not exactly the lines maybe you would use today, although maybe it would be. I'm not sure, but uh, but it worked, and they they started to get quite romantically engaged to one another. Yeah, when they got engaged, though, they ran into some problems. You know, not the smoothest uh, uh, engagement. I think understandably here with someone as committed to ministry and preaching as Charles Spurgeon was. And I I feel like this is true of most big preachers. It's it's difficult to juggle family and ministry. I mean, I think that's something that takes a lot of help from the Holy Spirit to do well. 
it's hard for people. A lot of people don't do that very well. A lot of people are great teachers and neglect family. Spurgeon does a pretty good job of doing both. Now that we're judging everybody, looking back on history with with perfect hindsight to to cast our judgment on, you know, that's not what I'm meaning to do, but just looking at his life, there was this instance where, uh, and his wife talks about this, and that's why that's why I'm bringing it up here, but they were about to go into uh, a service that Spurgeon was supposed to speak at, and he was overwhelmed with uh, this immense pressure that falls upon him, and he becomes fixated and focused on on preparing and getting ready for this sermon that he's about to go preach, completely ignoring Susanna, uh, completely leaving her behind because he's focused on something else. And this made Susanna really upset, and uh, she was pretty bummed out that her fiance essentially ditched her. And she went home and she told her mother about it and he was venting. And her mom told her that Charles was special and that he had a special ministry and that she couldn't let her selfishness get in the way of his ministry. And she said she had a heart change. And she decided that from that point on, she was not going to let her needs get above his. And I think that's going to interesting. There's, yeah, when it comes to marriages and ministry like that, it's, 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 a ton of work on both people's side to make that ministry work. Uh, And I think Susanna understood that. Both Susanna and Charles had a life of medical problems and suffering. But in Susanna's case, she was pretty much sick her very early life and pretty much her whole life. Even at times, she was a complete invalid, just not able to move, not able to do anything. The sickness, the pain, whatever was just completely had her out. And medicine back then was not perfect. You can imagine what it would be like going to the doctor in the 1800s, even if the doctors were pretty good at that time. If you had access to the really good ones, uh, you're still going to be taking a risk. And she went to a surgeon who believed he could make uh, her better and figured out what her problem was. Uh, But instead of improving the situation, the surgeon didn't either was wrong about what the cause was or he messed up the operation. But either way, she was in so much worse shape after having visited him and was far, far sicker for having gone to the surgeon. It took her a very long time. Eventually, she would be, I mean, completely on bed rest for, I think I read about 15 years at one point where she just was not able to leave the house and to do, um, quite frankly, too much at all. And despite all that, she uh, managed, and despite with not only all of the sickness that we just talked about, and with having an incredibly famous, incredibly busy husband, she was not somebody who gave up. She was able to do a whole lot herself. Yeah, so there, there was one day where Susanna had finished reading a book that Charles had written, and it was a book written for ministers who were being trained. And Charles asked her if she liked it. You know, what do you think of this book I wrote? And she said she loved it and that she wished every minister in the country would have a copy of it. And he said to her, basically, you know, so what are you going to do to make this happen? And, uh, you know, she decided, hey, what am I going to do to make this happen? She she said she was going to put her mind to it, right? And so she used her own money to buy books, and she bought about 100 of them to send out to ministers that she thought could use a copy of this book. And over time, people were hearing about what she was doing, you know, buying up these books and sending them to uh, ministers to help train ministers. And uh, people wanted to be a part of it. And so she created a book fund, and this book fund would grow and grow. And instead of the mere 100 books that she was able to to initially purchase, in a short time, she found that she was able to purchase 3,000 books and send those all over England. And eventually, during the course of of this ministry that she started, she would eventually reach over 71,000 books that her book fund was able to purchase for pastors in need of good theology. And the article I read uh, about this made the point that, you know, think of how many people got saved or got changed by the fact that their pastor got some really good books that he needed when, you know, he needed it. She was reaching probably people all over the world because these pastors got better at preaching or got better at teaching, got better at doing what they're called to do as a pastor because of this book fund. And then they're able to reach their congregation better. More people are getting reached. Those people go on and that maybe ministry themselves someday. I mean, that can be a real... Uh, just big impact through just this idea of I'm going to get these books in the hands of the people who really need them. And I, I, you know, Joel said over 71,000, but then I read later on that that was actually just kind of only after like nine years after it was going and when it was finished and when she died, the, it would be just, I mean, just a hair shy of 200,000 books distributed in her lifetime.
but not just distributing books. Susanna also uh, helped Charles write some of his books. She herself authored five books, and she was incredibly influential in putting together Charles' biographies, you know, which there were a few of those kind of being written at the time. And by the time she passed, she also helped kind of, I'm not, I couldn't tell if she created it, but she was definitely heavily involved in something called the Pastor Aid Fund. So, you know, getting pastors money when they need it, when they're in trouble. And the Westwood Clothing Fund, which I'm not sure what that is, but what I'm going to guess is a fund for getting clothes to people in the area of Westwood. She also had a whole lot of other kind of things going on. And she did all of this while raising two twin sons who both went into ministry themselves and Thomas Spurgeon, who we have done an episode on, would go on to directly replace Charles after he died and serve that same church that Charles Spurgeon had served faithfully for a few years. Their love for each other, despite how incredibly busy they were. I mean, I I try to imagine being that kind of busy where the wife is running a 200,000 book fund kind of situation while doing all these kind of ministries and while she's sick, while taking care of everything. And at the same time, you're preaching eight times a week. I can't even begin to imagine it. Yet it seemed like their love for each other never really faltered. The way they wrote about each other in their journals, the way they would write about their, each other when in their letters, it was immensely kind and sweet all the way through. And I think that if we're honest, they had the, the romantic relationship, the envy of anyone in the relationship. I thought that this would be an important thing to highlight as this episode of Charles Spurgeon focuses on his sermon, Small Things Not to Be Despised. And sometimes when we look at these historical characters, you know, the wives or their relationships at home, we don't think about them very much. We all, That's nothing compared to their ministry. And yet, uh, in this case, and I think in many cases, these are not, you know, those kind of relationships are certainly not small things, although history may brush over them. Um, I think they're small, small things not to be despised. For who has despised the day of small things? Zechariah 4.10 It is a very great mistake to despise the day of small things, for it is usually God's way to begin His great works with small things. We see it every day. For the first dawn of light is but a small ray, and yet by and by it grows into the full noontide heat and glory. We know how the early spring comes with its buds of promise, but it takes some time before we get to the beauties of summer or the wealth of autumn. How tiny is the seed that is sown in the garden, yet out of it there comes the lovely flower. How small is the acorn, but how great is the oak that grows up from it. The stream begins with a gentle trickle, but it flows on till it becomes a brook, and soon a river, perhaps even a mighty Amazon, where its course is run. God begins with men in the day of small things. He began so with us. How little and how feeble were we when first we came upon the scene of action. He who is now a giant was once so weak that he could not move from place to place except as he was carried in his mother's arms. Let us then not despise the day of small things as we see that God begins with littles in nature and amongst the sons and daughters of men. And I am sure that he does so in the great work of his church. Long ago he began to build a spiritual temple for his own habitation, but at first the stones of the foundation were hidden from the great mass of mankind. How little was known in the world at large concerning Abraham and his seed. How very, very slowly did the walls of that great temple rise. Even in the time of Zechariah, it was still the day of small things with the people of the Lord. Comparatively speaking, it is so still. For what is the Christian church compared with the great mass of the heathen world and of those who reject the Savior? Our Lord's method of spreading his truth among men was to begin with a handful of disciples in an upper room at Jerusalem, to fill them with his spirit, and then to let them be scattered over the whole known world. This is usually God's plan of working in his church, and also in individual believers. Of course, there are various degrees of ability and grace even among the Lord's own people. One of the old Puritans said that some men are born with beards, and certainly there are some believers who, almost as soon as they are converted, seem to make great strides and very soon become very useful and are even able to teach things which others only learn after long years of experience. 
but generally speaking, this is the order of the growth of grace in the heart. First the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. By and by another truth is discovered and the wounded heart is bound up by faith in Christ. This faith grows to full assurance. There is a gradual change into the image of Christ and that image becomes more and more clear till the man reaches the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ Jesus. But first, there is the beginning, which is small. And afterwards, there is the end, which shows a great increase. It is within our souls as it is in the world outside. The day begins with the dawn, but the shining light shines more and more for the perfect day. Woe to that man who despises the day of small things in the church of Christ, or who despises the day of small things in any individual believer. For it is God's day. It is a day out of which great things will come. And therefore, he that despises it really despises his master's work and despises the great and glorious things which are to come out of the small things which are present. I know some professing Christians who I am afraid despise the day of small things in little churches. There is gathered a small community of godly people. Perhaps they are poor and many of them illiterate. And some of you rich folk who think yourselves wonderfully intelligent, though I am not always sure that you are, if you happen to settle down in that village, you say that you would like to attend the little chapel or mission room, but the minister puts his H's in the wrong place and his speech is ungrammatical, and of course that is very painful to your refined tastes. Then the people are very poor and you hardly think that the church is advancing at all, so to help it, you leave it alone." God forbid you say that we should despise the day of small things, but you are very sorry that everything is on such a small scale. You say that you pity the poor people, but instead of helping them, you lie quietly by or you go off to a more fashionable place where you meet with some of your own class and feel more at home. There the H's are put in properly, though the gospel is left out of the preaching. But the people who attend are such a respectable sort of folk that you feel it is quite the correct thing to worship with them. If any of you have any respect for yourselves while acting in such a way as that, I hope you will soon discover that there is really nothing respectable in that kind of respectability. There is nothing that should make a man respected when he gives up his convictions and leaves his own true brethren for the sake of getting into a better class of society all to be of a superior order to the godly poor people to whom he can be of real service. To me, it seems that it should be your glory to join the poorest and weakest churches of your denomination. Wherever you go, to say, this little cause is not as strong as I should like it to be, but by the grace of God, I will make it more influential. At any rate, I will throw in my weight to strengthen the weak things of Zion, and certainly I will not despise the day of small things. Where would our flourishing churches of today be if our forefathers had disdained to sustain them while they were in their infancy? I thank God for the men who did not mind going down into backyards and up into haylofts, that they might worship God according to the dictates of their conscience. I delight in those who are willing to stand on the hilltops with the people sitting down on fallen trees or logs to listen to them and who are not afraid of being called fanatics and of bearing all manner of reproach and scorn for Christ's sake. But if you and I grow to be such great and grand people as some we have known, we must remember that the Lord does not mind taking us down a notch or two. And that could happen through a very painful process. He asks as if in indignation, Who has despised the day of small things? And I believe that he is grieved with any of his servants when they fall into such a state of mind and begin to despise his church because she is despised by the world and look down on his people as the high peaks of Bashan seem to regard with contempt the lowly hill of Zion. And so the psalmist said to them, Why do you leap, you high hills? This is the hill which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. My special object at this time is to reprove those who despise the earlier and weaker works of grace in the soul. True, it is the day of small things, but it is a subject for rejoicing. It is not to be despised. First, I will speak to proud professors who despise the day of small things in young beginners. Then I will have a little talk with young beginners who despise the day of small things in themselves 
And thirdly, I will speak of those who do not despise the day of small things. When this question is put to them, who has despised the day of small things, they can answer, Lord, you know that we have not done so. We have rejoiced in the small signs of grace and young beginners, and we hope to see great things grow out of them. First of all, there are some professing Christians who despise the day of small things and others. I am sure I do not know exactly at what point the day of grace begins in some people. There are some who, even before they fully receive the gospel, have some good thing in them. Oh no, you say, that cannot be. Well, just think for a moment. Before the sower went forth to sow, there was a certain part of the farm which was described as honest and good ground. There was another part that was like the highway and another part covered with thorns or stones, but there was something which distinguished the honest and good ground from all the rest of the land. I do not say that it was then bringing any fruit to God's glory, but I do say that God had, from a very early period, I do not know when, made that ground ready and fit to receive the seed. So I can believe that before a man even hears the gospel at all, there may be an antecedent work of what I may almost call secondary grace. Not saving grace, but making ready the heart for the reception of the saving grace of God. In my own experience, I never quite know where to put my finger upon the beginning of God's work in my soul. I can tell the very day and hour when I was converted, but I had many stirrings of conscience before that. I know that I was very effectually convinced of sin, but when the gracious work began, I cannot say. One of the first things that I recollect is lying awake at night because I had done something wrong to my mother. I do not know whether that was not the grace of God working in my heart even then. I think that it was. I'm sure that it was, in some measure, the Lord graciously working within me and making me ready for the more manifest work of his spirit. Now, dear friends, do not despise those little things, those preparations. But whenever you see them in children or in grown-up people, be thankful for them. Frequently, when I have been receiving members into the church, I have asked a good woman, is your husband a Christian? And the answer has often been, well, sir, he is a very good husband but I am afraid that he is not a Christian. Then I have inquired, what does he do with himself on Sundays? Oh, sir, he is always at the tabernacle. He has been attending the services for years, and he is very fond of you, sir. He will run home and hurry over his tea so as to get to the prayer meeting on Monday, and on Thursday nights he is never absent. I have said, my good woman, does your husband show such love to the Lord's house and to the minister, and yet he is not converted? Yes, she answers. He is not converted, for sometimes he does what he knows is not right. Still, he attends to the means of grace, and it is a great check upon him. He is a dear good husband, much better than he used to be. But I am afraid he is not a Christian, and that he does not truly pray for pardon. Ah, I say, let us have a little prayer together about him, and let us firmly believe that we will have him yet. If a man continues to come where we are constantly firing the gospel gun, one of the stray shots will still hit him. Be sure that you encourage him to keep on coming and mind that you are very kind to him and help him all you can in finding the Savior. We will rejoice together over him. When moths fly very near the candle, sooner or later they will singe their wings. There is a great gospel candle burning here, and I do not doubt that some of these human moths will dash into the flame by and by. So I hope you will encourage them to come here again and again until they are blessedly caught so that they can never fly away. Such people as I have been describing have very curious whims and fancies. They will take offense at almost nothing at all. So we must tread very softly and tenderly and not grieve any with who it is in this sense, the day of small things. I have known some come to Christ at last and trust in him, but it was with such very little faith that I hardly know whether, in their case, it was faith born or unbelief dying. You remember the poor man who said to Christ, Lord, I believe. And then he felt as if he had gone a little too far with his declaration, for he drew back and said, help my unbelief. And these poor, halting souls are just in that state. I hope they do believe, but I am sure they are very unbelieving. They begin to pray, but oh, what a strange prayer it is. Some of them repeat a form of prayer they learned a long time ago, which does not apply to their present situation, but still, they do mean to pray. 
They want to pray, and though it can scarcely be called prayer, yet I expect that God accepts it as prayer and graciously answers it. They have begun to repent. They do not have a very clear view of what sin is, but they know that it is something they would like to get rid of. They are like Paul when he was in Malta. I am not sure that he understood much about snakes and their bites, but when a viper fastened itself to his hand, he shook it off into the fire directly. So these people could not define sin theologically, but they wish that they were clear of it. They long to be pardoned. It is the day of small things with them, and it is not to be despised. Ah, dear friends, when a man tries to get away alone so that he may read his Bible, do not despise him. When a tear falls during a sermon and he brushes it away and wants to make you believe that there was something the matter with his nose, do not despise him even for that. I have seen that sort of thing happen many times, and I have been pleased to notice it. We need to delight in anything and everything that looks in the right direction and never think of despising it. Now I want to come directly to the important point. Why we should not despise these small things, these feeble beginnings, especially when there is a little grace in any people, why must we not despise them? Well, first, because in the church of Christ, there always were and there always will be babies as well as men. Do not despise the babies. Where are the men to come from if there are no babies? If it happens in God's family as it does in most families, you will soon find that it just will not do to despise the babies. How very grieved all loving parents are when their infants are so despised. You may ignore the big son if you like, but do not despise the babies. So, with regard to Christ's family, be sure to honor the little ones. Take care of them. Never stand in their way. When they want to come to Christ, allow them to come. It does not say draw them, for they are wanting to come, but get out of their way, and do not hinder them from coming. And whenever you meet with one who has lately been born of God and who is tender of heart, do not despise him. As long as the family of Christ is to increase, there always must be babies, and babies must never be despised. Again, dear friends, do not speak harshly to those who are newly born to God. For you were a baby once. Yes, yes, though you do not like to be reminded of it. You great giant that you are now were an infant once. And you with your deep experience and your profound knowledge, you who think you can set everybody else right, why once you hardly knew that two plus two makes four. You had to begin at the very beginning like others have had to do. So remember what you used to be. Look back to the hole of the pit where you were dug and do not begin to despise others who are in the same condition in which you once were. Remember again that the greatest saints in this world or whoever were in this world were babies in grace once. Whether it was Paul or Apollos or Cephas, they all began with a little grace and weak spiritual life at the first. Yes, there is not a bright spirit before the throne of God who was washed his robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, but once was only an infant in spiritual things. And if the greatest were once so little, that is a good reason why we should never despise the day of small things. Besides, dear friends, it should always check every tendency in this direction when we remember that God made and God loves the very least believer. You know a silver penny is as much silver as a half pound, and the queen's image on the one is as genuine as on the other. They are the current coin of the realm, and I am sure you will not treat with scorn the little pieces of money. Then why should we despise the small coins in Christ's treasury? When our dear young brothers and sisters are made of the same metal and stamped with the same image as we are, why should we despise them, though we happen to be or think we are? of somewhat more weight and value in the church of God than they are. Oh, do not despise the lowly violet that hides its head among the leaves. It is quite as much a flower of God's making as the finest tulip that airs its beauty, or the most brilliant rose that is before your eyes. God made the little things, and God loves them. Just as parents have a special love for their weak and little children, so God has a special favor toward the lambs of his flock. 
and he takes special care of the seedlings in his garden, which have not yet come to the fullness of growth. If you do, there's one sentence I would utter that ought to rebuke you very effectively. Your master would not despise them if he were here. Christ has a quick eye to see little graces in his people, and when he sees them, he delights in them. A diamond is a diamond even if it is tiny, and Christ's people are Christ's people even if they have such little grace. Oh, if the Lord Jesus Christ would have carried that lamb in his heart, why do you refuse to carry it? Why do you push it too hard? Why should there be so often heard stinging words and keen, cutting, sarcastic remarks about the feebleness of knowledge or the defects of practice? When if there is but grace in the heart, you and I need to rejoice to see it. I have often quoted to you the words of Jerome when he said that he loved Christ and Augustine and he loved Augustine and Christ. So we are to love the weakest believers, to love Christ in them and to love them in Christ. May the Holy Spirit teach us to be like our master in this respect as well as in all others. I have finished this word of gentle rebuke when I add that if you and I despise the day of small things, the probability is that we will have to suffer for it. You remember that passage in Ezekiel where the Lord speaks of the fat cattle pushing the weak cattle with their horns and their shoulders. They were big bulls of Bashan and they were always going one way and pushing against another because they happened to be weak and sickly and the Lord said that he would judge between the cattle and cattle and those that had been so headstrong and so proud and so cruel would have to suffer for it. The day comes, my proud brother when you will be glad to sit at the feet of that young Christian you now despise. I have noticed that sort of thing many times. It is a part of my pastoral observation that when persons who were genuine Christians have been proudly lifted up, they have been made to go down very low till they have envied those they once despised and said, if we felt as sure of salvation as that dear young man that we judged so harshly, we would willingly enough change places with him and take what we called his inexperience and his lack of knowledge if we could be just as simple in our confidence in Christ as he is. So then, beloved, if you do not want to bring the rod upon your own back, despise not the day of small things but be ready to cherish and comfort all in whom the work of grace has apparently begun, even to the smallest extent. Now, secondly, there are some who despise the day of small things in themselves. They think that it is very humble to do so, but I'm not sure that it is. I think it is very foolish to do so. There are some who despise the day of small things in themselves, and in this way, they miss the small things. Suppose that a young man is convicted under a sermon with a sense of sin. The wise thing for him to do is to get home as quickly as he can and cry, Lord, I do not know whether this is true repentance, but if it is not, make it so. Lord, I am half afraid that I am only a stony ground hearer and that this good seed will spring up for a little while and then will wither. Lord, break my stony heart and do it effectively. Be very thankful, dear friends. If you have the faintest spiritual inclinations, I know some men who would almost give their eyes if they could but feel anything, but they say that they sit and hear and the only result is what Cooper said. If anything is felt, tis only pain. To find I cannot feel. So if you have any spiritual feeling at all, do not despise it, but go to God with it. And pray that the work which seems to be begun in you may be carried on until it is complete. And if it is not begun, pray it may begin at once. When you feel sometimes in the assemblies of God's house a softening influence coming over your spirit, or when in the middle of your work you do not know why, you suddenly feel very tender in heart, perhaps walking down into the city early in the morning before many people are awake, you feel a somberness quite unusual to you do not despise it these little things may lead on to a blessed saving work and i pray to the lord that you may take care of these dewdrops of grace if there are but a few tiny drops and if they are but cared for and valued the lord will yet look still more graciously upon you and send you a bountiful shower of blessing do not despise anything that looks like grace in your heart 
God help you to take it as a gardener takes at this time of the year, the little slips and cuttings and puts them in silver sand to make them grow that he may have the flowering plants come at their proper time. Use your cuttings, the little things that seem as if they could not have any life in them. God would have you plant them in favorable circumstances that they may grow to his praise and glory. Some despise the day of small things in themselves because they do not think that any good can come of them. When I was preaching this morning, I thought that perhaps some poor soul would take comfort to himself. And I said to a brother when I went outside, I do like sometimes to have a subject which comes rolling up like a sea of grace because there are so many people who are like oysters in the riverbeds waiting for the tide to return. I did hope this morning that it was a flood tide and that some of you would open your shells and that the blessed word of God would come into your very souls. If you do that, it will come in. The oyster cannot make the sea roll up, but whenever he feels it rolling over him, he says, now is the time for me to open my shell. And when you feel now is the time for me to seek the Lord, now is the day of salvation. Now is the high tide of grace. You will have the blessing. It is all around you or else you would not have opened your shell. It is the very flood tide of grace that has made you feel what you do feel. Therefore, be glad and do not despise it. It may seem a little thing to feel tender and solemn, but it is not so. It is often the beginning of a blessed work of grace. Value it highly. Some I have known who despise the blessing by resolutely resisting its entrance into their hearts. I can never forget some instances of this resistance that I have known. I was preaching once in a certain city and a gentleman who had been very kind to me was in the congregation, but I saw him get up in the middle of the sermon and go out of the building. The brother who was with me slipped out after him and said to him, my dear sir, why did you go out? He answered, Mr. Spurgeon has got me in his hands. I am like an India rubber doll and he can twist me into any shape that he likes. I am afraid that if I had listened to him for another 10 minutes, I would have been converted. So off he went, deliberately stomping out the spark of truth as it came toward him. He would not let the good seed grow. He invited the birds of the air to come and steal it away. Do not forget that, although the Lord graciously changes man's will, and he has absolute power over the human will and makes men willing on the day of his power. Yet he never saves anybody against his will. And while the will stands out against God and is unrenewed and unchanged, the man is still unsaved. It does seem to me a dreadful thing that people can come to the house of God without any desire to get a blessing and there cover themselves up in armor of mail to keep every arrow from getting anywhere near their hearts. That is one method of despising the day of small things. I know some others who despise the day of small things because if they get a little good in their hearts, they do not try to get more. If we did not expect a little child to ever grow, we would really despise him. So if the grace of God has come into your heart, you will do all in your power to make it grow and increase and prove that you do not despise it. I think I have said enough to show that if any here have the slightest sign of the beginnings of grace, any glimmerings of the divine light, any first outlines of the image of Christ upon their heart, they must not despise them. But they should pray to God to bless them and bring them to maturity. If they do so, I will tell you what God will do. It is hinted at in the verse from which our text is taken. For they will rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They had begun to rebuild, but it was such a poor, paltry piece of work, and the wall was still so low that they despised it. But when they saw the prince standing there, with a plumb line in his hand, and saw stone after stone brought and laid in its place, and their great leader watching as the chief architect, they said to one another, See... The prince is there with the plumb line in his hand. He is a man who never undertakes a task unless he goes through with it. So depend upon it. The work will be completed. In the same way, I can see that although it may be very little grace that is in your heart, yet Christ has come with that grace. 
Christ is building in your heart. Christ is laying the foundation stone. The prince of the kings of the earth, Christ Jesus, is there with his plumb line, and he that has begun the good work in you will carry it on till it is perfected in glory. Oh, what a blessing it is to look to Christ with the plumb line in his hand and say, Great master builder, I will not despise these foundations only because they are hardly seen above the soil. For I know that you who have begun the good work will carry it on and perfectly perform all that you have promised. The temple will someday appear to your praise where now there seems to be but a tiny heap of stone. That is the way to cure you of despising the day of small things in yourselves. Now, my last point is this. There are some who never despise the day of small things. I have time for only a few words on this part of my subject, but I wish them to be very tender words. First, true pastors never despise the day of small things. Speaking for myself, I can say that I love to see those of you who are unconverted show any sign of serious thought, any clue of a coming change, any sign that you are turning for the Lord. My heart is happy whenever I see it. Does anyone think that I despise it? Why, I pray to God continually to bring it to pass. Despise it? I look for it as the reward of my toil. If I did but know that I had helped awaken the thought in any one of you, I should go home happy. If I did but hear that the Lord was bringing a score or two to himself, I would gladly lie awake at night to bless his name for such a mercy as that. I do not care for the vastness of this congregation, but I do care for the individual souls in it. And I rejoiced most of all over those who are saved out of it. What good is it simply to bring you here and to have you sitting quietly while I talk to you? It is a waste of time and labor unless it brings you to Christ. But if I know that any of you are brought to penitence and faith, I am sure that I do not despise it, for I value such blessings above the choicest gold. And let me also tell you that your dear parents, your Christian wife, and your godly daughter who persuaded you to come to this service do not despise the day of small things. I have known some of our members do really extraordinary things in order to get people to come here in the hope that they might be converted. There was one who, after many attempts at last, induced a man to promise that he would come with him one day. So he went round to fetch him. Oh, I cannot come, said the man. I am making a rabbit trap. Well, said the other, I have one ready made that I will give you. But, said the man, I cannot come. I promised to go see a man who has a pair of pigeons to sell. My friend answered, I have a pair of pigeons that I will give to you if you will come with me. It was all in vain. He might have offered that man what he wanted, but he could not get him. I hope that he has brought him by this time. If not, I know that he will stick to him till he does see him here. And I know another thing that he will bring the friend to his own sitting, and he will, if necessary, himself stand in the aisle and pray for him all through the service. Well, now, if he gets his friend to hear the word and sees that he is impressed by it, you do not suppose that he will despise the day of small things, do you? On the contrary, he will be glad even for the slightest sign of the working of God's Spirit in his friend's heart. Your godly mother, when she hears that you have been to the tabernacle, will say, Bless God for that. If she finds that you have begun to pray, her heart will leap within her. A dear father, a minister of the gospel, writes to me and says, My son had never decided for God till he went to hear you at Exeter Hall. And during the evening sermon, he bowed his head and gave himself up to the Lord. And now he is proposed as a member of my church. God bless you, sir. It is always so with true Christians. They do not despise the day of small things, but they are glad when their children are brought to Christ. And it is just the same with all soul winners. And I hope that many here are of that class. If they can spy anything like the tiniest egg of grace, they feel so glad and they watch you and they say to one another, is that light that I can see there in the east? And the other says, I do not know. I'm afraid it is not. Oh, says the first friend, but I think it is. Does it not look a little gray just over there? No, replies the other. I am afraid that it is not morning light yet. That is how some of us talk about you. 
We are often talking and praying about you, dear hearers. And we say to one another, when will so-and-so come to the Savior? There's a good man here whom I pray for nearly every day, and I know that his wife does the same. He loves to come here, yet he is still an unsaved man. But by the grace of God, he cannot remain where he is if prayer can stir him. We will pray him out of it and bring him to the Savior. May the Lord grant that it may speedily be so. There is one other person who never despises the day of small things. And with him I finish. That is our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is so eager to see the travail of his soul that if he spies in you even a desire after him, he is pleased with it. Believe me that if you have but a spark of desire after Christ, he has a whole furnace of desire after you. Oh, that you would have him as your savior. He is free to every soul of you who will have him. Is it not put just so in his last invitation? Whoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Do not think that he excludes you. You may exclude yourself. But if there is in your heart any wish, any shadow of a wish, anything like a desire for Christ, you may come and be welcome. Mercy's gate is wide open. Christ invites you to his house and to his heart. Oh, come to him and come now. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. May his divine spirit lead you to believe in him at this moment. To believe in him is to trust him. Throw yourself on him, sink or swim. Take Christ to be yours. Oh, have you done it? Then you are saved. For he that believes in the Son has everlasting life. His belief is the evidence that he is a saved man already. So go your ways. And the Lord be with you. But I charge every one of you, meet me in heaven. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Josh Durenboss. He is a husband and a father of five sons, and he's a pastor of youth and music in a small church in southern eastern Iowa. And he's a dedicated listener to Revived Thoughts and Martyrs and Missionaries, and is honored to be able to voice this Charles Spurgeon sermon, after whom one of his sons is partially named. Oh, that's nice. All right. If you are listening to this episode, I am going to tell you, go check out our Patreon. We have the second deep dive part two of Ethiopia now available for you to listen to. We really do hope you will enjoy it. It gets to some very, very exciting material. And we are encouraging you all to go check it out. Go click, go download, go listen. If you are a Revive Thoughts premium uh, listener, if you are not Ethiopia deep dive part two plus part three, which will be coming up soon. You also get Joan of Arc. You also get the first crusades. And you get the Salem Witch Trials all available to you easily. And of course, there are other good things that we enjoy and we can send your way to if we get your address and all those kind of things. So there are lots of good things about being part of it, plus an ad-free feed. We encourage you to go join us on Patreon. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. Revive Thoughts.